0: This episode of the Filmmaker Mixer podcast is sponsored by Reeds Cleaners in Austin, Texas. We launder everything but money.
1: This episode is also sponsored by Piers Henry Headshots, shining the spotlight on you. Welcome to the Filmmaker Mixer podcast. My name is Andrew and I'm joined alongside my co-host Jeff as always. Today we have on a special guest. He has co-founded one of the top film festivals running today. That is Dan Marvish.
0: Dan talks about the early days of Slam Dance, his new movie 18 and a half, and the joy of connecting with an audience on the Film Festival circuit. Hello, everybody. This is the Filmmaker Mixer podcast, and today we are talking to Dan Mervish. Dan is the co-founder of the Slam Dance Film Festival. He is a director, screenwriter, producer, and an author. His new feature, 18 and a half, is an award-winning thriller dark comedy about the 70s Watergate scandal. Dan's other films include Bernard and Huey, Between Us, Open House, and Omaha the Movie. So, Dan, welcome to the podcast.
2: Thanks for having me. Uh great to be here.
0: It's our pleasure. You know, one of the things I'm always curious about when I talk to people in the creative field, you know, directors and actors and writers, I'm wondering when the magic first sparked in them, pointing them in the direction of, in your case, being a storyteller and a filmmaker. Was there a moment when you were a kid or a teenager when you first picked up that camera or maybe saw, you know, that one movie that had a profound impact on you and led you to the decision to become a filmmaker?
2: Well, uh, that's a good question. I mean, when I was 12, a group of six of my, or five of my buddies and me, we raised money and uh, made a little super eight film called beyond the ray of death and uh, a <laughs> super eight camera. But I, you know, and that was, that was the extent of my filmmaking for, for the first, you know, part of my life. Um, and then, but then when I went to college, I went to Washington university in St. Louis. Um, they had one super eight class. And so I took that and great professor guy named Van McElvey. who's like a, um, worked at Webster University, but he taught this one class at Wash U. Um, That was great. It stopped stopped motion animation and live action stuff. Anyway, anything you could do was Super 8. And and that was about it for film classes there. And then I took some summer classes at um, UCLA in cinematography and lighting. Uh, They were both taught by this great... um, uh czech uh cinematographer named frank Valert and and it was just incredibly inspiring and and full of life and uh and then he um and the the you know in ucla is like a real film school it smells like you know uh eucalyptus and opportunity and um (laughs) and i was like wow this is this is awesome this is really fun um so when i went back to college now i knew how to use a 60 millimeter camera that's what, that's what i learned at ucla and then i was i was really involved with um we had a student group that that showed movies um every night of the week um on 60 millimeter uh, uh you know um, like uh, classic movies uh, foreign films you know b movies cult films all, all kinds and of
0: w- was was this part of the school or was this something you were It doing was outside? it was a stu-
2: it was a student run club but I gotcha, um, gotcha. served the school and uh, and so because now i knew how to use 16 millimeter, we we actually got student funding to to produce a um, you know coming soon and no smoking trailers and um that would show before the movies and uh and that was like my first real experience like making a production you know um and uh yeah and that kind of gave me the bug and but there was only so much i could do as an undergrad and i wound up majoring in history and poli-sci I, I interned in dc one semester then when i graduated i went went back to dc and i wound up working there for about a year and a half or so as a, as a senate speechwriter, and for tom harkin from iowa um, and even doing that, we did a lot of the speeches about once a week, we'd go to the basement of the Capitol where unbeknownst to the January 6th Marauders, there's a couple of really nice, um, production studios in the basement. Um, and, uh, and we would were like pre-record speeches, you know, just on, I mean, nothing particularly creative, just a teleprompter. Um, but I'd be hanging out with the guys in the booth, you know, and they're like, oh, dude, you should go to film school, you know? And, um, <laughs> And I knew if I stayed in D.C. like long enough, by the time you hit 30, someone just gives you a law degree and a, a three-piece suit, you know, sort of by osmosis, whether you want it or not. And All I right. thought, well, that's okay for some people, but I think I sh- if I'm going to apply to film school, now's the time. And so I did. Um, and, uh, you know, got uh, I got rejected from NYU, Columbia, AFI, and San Francisco State, but I got into USC. So- I went there for grad school. There you
1: go. And like Jeff said, um, you helped co-found the Slam Dance Film yeah. Festival. It's an iconic festival now. I'd like to flash back to the 90s when you and your partners decided to start that festival. How did that happen? and did you ever think it would become what it is today?
2: Well, um, yeah, so I while I was at SC, I was the first person there to figure out how to do a feature film for their thesis. Um, there were various loopholes I had to jump through to, to get there, but um, so I shot this film, Omaha, the movie, went back to Nebraska, uh, teamed up with um, local producer named Dana Altman, his grandfather just happened to be Robert Altman, um, and we shot it on 35mm. Panavision gave us cameras. We edited it on the Paramount lot, um, and at the time, the kind of the traditional way to get to Sundance or to get anywhere really was to go to what was then called the independent feature film market IFFM, which is now, which then became IFP week and it's now called Gotham week. Uh, right, but right. at the time it was really designed mainly for finished films and you as a market to show the film to, um, right. to distributors, but also to festival programmers. Cause it was, you know, it was a little harder to just submit a film back then, um, in, in decent form. So, And Kevin Smith, the year before, had showed his film and got into Sundance and became Kevin Smith, right? So that was kind of the model everyone was trying to aim for. This was in like September of '94, and but while we were there, Dana Altman, who was with me, was thought, "Oh, well, you know, we all make our own individual films in kind of a bubble. Um, You know, we should do something, especially because he was stuck in Nebraska, still is. I just saw him three days ago." there uh she you know like uh, this is before the internet this is before IndieWire. wire you know there was no sort of national networking system for indie filmmakers around the country so he had the idea to get a whole bunch of us together a um, bunch of other filmmakers and we all have this kind of sit down meeting where we were talking about oh what can we do to collaborate now that we've all finished our films and um as part of that discussion, we were talking about, well, what do you you know, what's you know, everyone everyone thought they, their own film was going to get into Sundance, including us. You know, you're like, well, I'm going to Sundance. I don't know what you guys are doing. And um and we had heard of a couple of individual filmmakers a year before, including Trey Parker and Matt Stone, South Park guys. Well, before South Park, they were a couple of University of Colorado students who their thesis films called Cannibal the Musical didn't get into Sundance. And they did their own little renegade screenings in Park City. James Marandino oh. had The Upstairs Neighbor. He did the same thing. Uh, there were also a group of uh, New York filmmakers, including Matt Harrison, who had this group called Film Crash. They had done some some screenings of shorts out in Park City when they didn't get invited to Hits. So we heard of these kind of renegade things going on. And that was kind of everyone's sort of plan B. Because... If you think about it, and, and this is, you know, 94, 95 was kind of, a, was a, wound up being a really pivotal time in the history of independent film. It was, um, you know, it was kind of the, the the Hollywoodization of independent film was going on around then. It was around that time that Miramax became part of Disney, that Fine Line became part of Warner Brothers. Fox was about to launch Fox Searchlight. So, um, you, you know, and then Sundance decided they were, going to go along for the ride, you know, come on in Harvey, do what you do, which is basically what they said. And he did. So, um, but at the same time, there were, there were very few other options. I mean, at the IFFM in particular, I remember we had a great screening there, fantastic screening. And one distributor came up to me afterwards and said, oh, well, we love the film. We want to pick it up for distribution. I said, fantastic. They said, if it gets into Sundance, I said, oh, well, okay. And if it doesn't, no, then we don't want it. So they were just very matter of fact about it, but you know, there were fewer festivals at the time. There were really no other festival in the U.S. that you could premiere at and make any kind of a dent because every regional festival, every international festival would just use that Sundance program guide as their, oh, well, these are the 12 indie films this year out of America, I guess that's it, you know. And so if you didn't get into Sundance, you were really stuck. You know, you wouldn't get distribution. You wouldn't get an agent. You wouldn't get financing. You wouldn't get laid. I mean, nothing would go right for you if you didn't get into Sundance. It was kind of all or nothing. So we heard about these kind of plan B ideas and, and uh, you know, like the South Park guys had done. Um, and we thought, okay, well, that's that that's going to be our, our fail safe. Our backup is, is we're going to do that. Anyway, then as it turned out, like a month or two later, uh, none of us got into Sundance. Um, of the 95 completed films at the IFFM that year, Sundance didn't take a single one. You know, they were more focused on films by second time directors and bigger budgets and bigger name actors and films that sort of had distribution or were about to get distribution. I mean, all good films and by good filmmakers, but still, they just they didn't take as many films total at the time. And they kinda of left behind the niche of the first time indie directors. So uh Shane Kuhn, who had directed this film called Redneck, um, uh, he called me up and he said, Hey, and and he had been at this meeting that we'd had in, in New York, he said, you know, hey, remember that idea Dana had of all of us doing something together? He said, Why don't we combine that with this plan B idea of of showing films, um, you know, renegade style, and why don't we get like a bunch of us together and and do, you know, pool our resources and get a dozen feature films. And then and then we wound up meeting Paul Rackman. He said, oh, why don't we do shorts too? And we're like, yeah, we're not really doing shorts. He said, oh, that's too bad cause my producing partners on my short film is a is a trained projectionist. We said, congratulations, we're now doing short films. And <laughs> uh, um, So, you know, so it was kind of that spirit. And then so that first year we had a dozen features and a dozen shorts and we just, you know, basically showed up in Park City 30 feet down the hall from Sundance at so the, and started screening films. So, um, and then, you know, even by the end of that week, we we had an inkling that, oh, this, this, we may be serving a niche year that is bigger than ourselves. So, why don't we? So, I went with Peter Baxter, who was one of the producers in one of the films that year. And we um, uh, we put down his credit card. I made sure it wasn't mine um, <laughs> and, and rented space for the next year. And then, uh, you know, and then John Fitzgerald was my very, was one of the other founders, and 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 he and Peter kind of ran things for a couple of years, and you know, been going ever since.
0: And did you um, make a conscious effort at that moment, or did it evolve over time to to stamp yourself differently from the other film festivals? Because I know you've you've stayed really mm-hmm. um, close to that indie spirit.
2: Yeah, no, it was a very conscious decision to. I you mean, know, first of all, we didn't know how most festivals ran, but we did know. How sundance was running and we weren't invited you know so um uh it was a very conscious decision to do everything differently than sundance so our motto was you know at least for competition films it was going to be all first-time directors with low budgets what you know th- and that definition changes over the years but um and and with no distribution in place prior to the festival um and that and we've stuck with that for 28, 29 years, however long it's wow. that that literally hasn't changed. But then also the way we do our programming is also uniquely different than Sundance. Uh you know, all the programming is done by alumni filmmakers. Every film gets seen by at least by two different sets of eyes, usually more than that. Um, no one is invited early. I mean, this was a real problem I think that Sundance had and still probably has is that they, so many slots get taken up early by films that they see, films that went through their lab, film that they're wink, wink, nudge, nudge, they're friends with the producer, whatever it is. uh, And we're like, no, we are making all of our decisions all at the last minute, (laughs) you know, but all at the same time, you know, so no one, doesn't matter who you are or where, you know, you, you, everyone's judged at the same time and that was and that was a key distinction between us and sundance and between us and a lot of other festivals um i mean you know since then and and having gotten to know a lot about how other festivals are run i mean there's there's a lot of different ways to program festivals there's no one way or one right way um you know so it's but this is just how slam dance does its thing but i mean i think that's helped us stay fresh i mean you know we've had um, you know, a fantastic track record of alumni, um, certainly, you know, everyone from Bong Joon-ho to C- Christopher Nolan, Ryan Johnson, who had been a PA on my first film I'm on a movie, uh, to the Russo brothers, um, uh, the late Lynn Shelton, Lena Dunham, uh, uh, Sean Baker, the Safdie brothers, I think Ar- Ari Aster, um, mm-hmm. uh, I don't know, all, like all kinds of people have had their first films at Slamath. But what's interesting when what a lot of people don't realize is how many of them have stayed on as programmers. I mean, the Russo brothers were programmers for three years. Ryan did it for a year. Chris Nolan's wife, Emma, is his producing partner. She was a programmer for two or three years. So, you know, these people have stayed involved in all kinds of ways. And and that's what is more uniquely different about Slamdance than than the kinds of films we actually show. It's, it's the way that people stay involved. It is this community that you know, that uh, Hollywood doesn't realize we have, you know, they they don't realize that when I'm casting a film, I can call Joe Russo and say, hey, how's Jim Rash to work with? Or, you know, that kind of thing. And and he'll tell me, you know, he may not invest in my movie, but he'll, you know, help in other ways or Lynn Shelton helping me out in ways. And, you know, things like that um, have been really exciting and, and fun. And, and I think also unique compared to other festivals even even compared to Sundance because Sundance is so big that a lot of those filmmakers don't even meet each other you know when they're there so um I think that's so we've definitely tried and we've and you know as filmmakers ourselves we we've now been to a ton of festivals I've been to like 100 festivals around the world like I we see what works at other festivals and what doesn't work at other festivals you know in terms of logistics and parties and venues and you know, we've uh, there's always a temptation to grow and expand. And we're like, no, no, no. The best festivals are the ones that are small and intimate. And, um, you know, and that's and let's let's stay focused on doing what we do well instead of doing a dozen things that we don't do well.
1: And switching from festivals to production, your most recent film 18 and a half is a 1970s period piece, thriller and dark comedy. It's a very clever concept dealing with uh, the missing 18 and a half minutes from the Nixon tapes. I'm curious what the origin of that idea was and when did you realize it could be a film?
2: Yeah, I mean, I've I've always been interested in politics. I mean, you know, from my time working in D.C. and and, and even before that working, uh, you know, getting a poli-sci and history double major and, and one of my professors was Thomas Eagleton who was, um, who had been McGovern's running mate in 72 until he was kicked off because of possibly nixon shenanigans so um so i'd have watergate on the on the brain for a long time um and then uh uh what happened was the last film i did before this one was called bernard and huey and that one was an old 30 year old script that was written by jules pfeiffer the oscar pulitzer obi winning um writer cartoonist and anyway it was on our last day of shooting that film we were in new york it was it coincided with the 2016 presidential election and so the next day, I drove out to um, to Shelter Island, uh, which is on the tip of Long Island, um, but kind of in the in the middle of the Peconic Bay. You have to take a ferry to get there. Um, and I was showing Jules dailies, but naturally we were talking about the election. We were talking about you know Trump getting elected, and 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 Pfeiffer had been very active during you know, as a cartoonist uh, during Watergate and during the Nixon era, and that's actually when he won his Pulitzer Prize for political cartooning. Ah uh, was for his Nixon Watergate cartoons, um, so we were you know just talking about uh, Nixon and Watergate and Trump and how many impeachments could we possibly have, and um, and then that night I took the ferry back over to uh, Greenport, New York, which is on the tip of Long Island. My buddy Terry, who was an indie filmmaker in LA for many years, but he had inherited this motel that his um, grandparents had built in the fifties and sixties, and. I was going to stay there that night and Terry was showing me around and Terry had been with me talking to Pfeiffer and, um, and, and I said, yeah, this is an amazing vintage location. And, and Terry had kept it like intentionally vintage, kept the neon sign working in perfect condition, um, because he realized they were getting a ton of fashion shoots out there. And, um, you know, Vogue, Harper's, all kind of things like that. Music videos had shot their episodics had shot their commercials, but no one had ever shot a feature. And he said, but you know, hey, Dan, we're closed in the winter. And you come up with a story, you know, and the cast and crew can all stay out here. And I was like, well, we were just talking about Watergate. This sure looks like 1974. So let's do a Watergate movie. And we're like, all right, <laughs> let's do it. How hard can it be? And um, so then kind of figured out what is sort of how, okay, well, then how do you do a Watergate story in a New York motel, which it obviously doesn't look like the watergate so i did a lot of research and then teamed up with um a writing partner who'd been an intern on bernard and huey daniel moya who's also from new york uh, from long island and in doing the research of about watergate we realized that there were you know four or five different offices within the white house complex that had um these voice activated taping systems and it wasn't just the oval office and there really are tapes of Nixon listening to his own tapes on a you know a, a tabletop reel to Real player, and he's fumbling with the buttons and he's trying to figure this out. And all of a sudden, then it, it occurred to us that this was our plausible way into the story: that a character, a fictional character, in our case uh, Connie, played by Willa Fitzgerald, is a is a transcriber in the Nixon White House, and she gets basically a tape of nixon and one of his aides um listening to and then deleting the 18 and a half minute gap and so she has now a tape of the tape and plausibly has it and then could would make an arrangement to meet a reporter at a and we changed the you know location from long island to uh, the jesapeake just to make it a little closer to dc and um and then, and then you know we're off to the races with the plot. And then, then they're looking to find a real the real player. They meet, you know, a strange, you know, a strange French woman married to a World War II vet and a one eyed, you know, proprietor and a group of hippies and <laughs> swingers and whatnot. So um, you know, I mean, it's 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 fictional, but it, it, you know, the approach to historical fiction was all you know. I figure that there's kind of two ways to do it. One is sort of the Tarantino way, um, where by the end of the movie, you've completely rewritten the course of history. You're now in an alternate version of history, you know, Hitler's dead or Manson does something or doesn't do something. But I think the more traditional way of doing historical fiction is you, you create these fictional characters in this real world and, and, and something interesting happens during the course of your, your narrative. But by the end of it, history has kind of reset itself to to what we know now. And then that makes the whole story plausible in the audience's eyes. Not necessarily right. realistic, but plausible. And so that was kind of our goal. And we were able to we just kind of build the whole narrative around that.
0: I really like the look of the film and how it maintained that 70s feel. And I think I heard this in another interview, and and you can correct me if I'm wrong, but in addition to the obvious choices, set design and costuming and so forth, um, didn't you choose to use only '70s style film techniques when you were making the movie, or, or am exactly. I wrong about that?
2: Yeah, yeah, no, that's that's exactly it. Yeah, and this was this was sort of a a, a mandate I sort of set for myself and everybody on the cast and crew, you know, from from the writing stage on down was that we were only going to use creative techniques um, that could have been used in 1974. And so kind of the most obvious thing is there's no drone shots in the movie. There's no, but there's also no cam shots. cam was invented in 1976. Um, right, right. The lenses we use were all vintage lenses from the early 70s. Um, the, the music is all music from from even earlier from 60s bossa nova music 60s 70s music but my composer luis dara you know he used you know vintage instruments even microphones um uh, and and we could all and working with el uh, schneider my great cinematographer you know we only moved the camera in ways that it could have moved then and which is basically dolly tracks and sticks like you know I mean it's the low budget way to make a movie anyway you know or occasionally <laughs> you know there's a couple of scenes that are handheld so um so that was kind of the mandate from the beginning and and even in the editing and I was the editor you know it's it's pretty much only straight cuts there's no ramping of speed you know that wouldn't have happened then um but there are things like you know optical zooms were a big thing in the late 60s and early 70s people got away right. from them and i it fully embraced that and so there's a lot lot of the zooms are actually done in post you know now they're digital but it's the same technique as using an old optical printer um which is something that i played around with a lot at usc so um yeah so it was it was that kind of thing and then even the the miking technique we, we took a page straight out of robert altman everyone all the actors got you know were on their own lavalier mic and you know plus the boom um, it was, it was a true single camera shoot, no, no multi-cam. Um, yeah, that was, um, but yeah, so aesthetically it just, you know, I mean, we, the camera was digital, but the lenses were old. So, um, but even in color correction, I had to tell the color corrector, uh, the great guy, but you know, like, okay, don't do anything too fancy, you know, with power windows or anything like that. Like what could have been done in 1974, you know? Um, and we tried to stick with that.
0: No, that's fascinating. I think that's a great idea. Really, a really great choice. But, um, and it's a great cast. You know, Willa oh, Fitzgerald yeah. and John uh, McGarro um, and John Richard Kind. Yeah. Richard Kind and 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 you have Bruce Campbell as the voice of Nixon. That yeah. <laughs> that's pretty inspired. Yeah. Um, how did you pull that team of <laughs> casting folks together? Did you how did how did casting work?
2: So I had a great casting director, Best uh, Pfeiffer, working closely with me. Um, and then, and then Daniel and Terry wound up being my producing partners too. So they obviously had a lot to do with it. Um, but a lot of these people came from either people that I knew, or I knew their agents or, or they were recommended by other filmmakers. So, uh, Willa Fitzgerald, who honestly I hadn't heard of before didn't know her before. Um, but her, one of her agents, actually a junior agent at, um, uh, a paradigm who I'd worked with on the last film had helped this cast the last film. He said oh you got to meet this one you got to meet a fantastic actress and it was it was like six months before we started shooting it was kind of early for casting even but i was in new york and he's like oh yeah you sit down with her we met her and she was great and then you know and then we thought about other people in the intervening months and then and then just really kind of kept coming back to her and she was available and a lot of other people were you know off shooting pilots and pilot season and that kind of thing and we're like and she's like no i want to do the movie so we cast her, um and then it turned out she was also recommended by Lucky McKee, someone I went. To, who was also at USC, same. You know, he was buddies with with Ryan Johnson, and but it, Lucky and I had stayed in touch, and he said, "Oh yeah, she's great to work with." And that was, you know, that means a lot to me. I spend a lot of time talking to other directors and getting recommendations. So Kelly Reichart recommended um, John McGarrah, you know, who had just done First Cow with her. And I was like, if Kelly Reichart recommends someone, you. Just say yes, you know. Like <laughs> that, that's kind of the rule. So, um, and then there were some people that I knew previously, like you know Bruce Campbell. We'd actually tried to cast in Bernard and Huey, in my last film, and then scheduling wise, that didn't work out. But you know, but I, it meant that he was familiar with me. We'd never actually spoken, but he he knew who I was. I certainly knew who he was. Uh, you know, and his agent, you know, was familiar with with us. So. And originally, he was actually going to play the part that vadi Curtis Hall wound up playing, uh, which was the kind of World War II vet. And then he just had cataract surgery or something like that and couldn't do fight scenes. And he said, oh, sorry, Dan, I can't be in the movie. And I was like, I am not losing Bruce Campbell twice. <laughs> so <laughs> I said, Bruce, you are going to be in this movie. Um, I said, how about playing the voice of Nixon? And he just jumped on that. He loved it because he had been a huge Watergate aficionado when he was 14. He spent the whole summer watching the Watergate hearings. And he and Ted Raimi had done Nixon, Haldeman kind of comedy bits for one of their comedy records, you know, so he was very familiar with it. And he had just played Reagan on an episode of Fargo and got really great critical attention for that. And it's, you know, very obviously very different from the the genre stuff he's, he's mostly known for. It. So, and I think, you know, he's at the point in his career where he wants to kind of stretch what he's doing. So, and you know, frankly, it's an easy ask. It's like, hey dude, do you want to do like two hours of voiceover? (laughs) You know, you'd still like the fifth biggest part in the movie, Um, at some point in post-production, sometime in the next year or or two, you know, for an actor like, sure, yeah, fine, put me down. (laughs) Like it's an easy commitment. Same thing with John (laughs) Cryer, you know, John Cryer, who's someone I've known you know, and I haven't known him well, but I'm, you know, we met 30 years ago. He was a fan of Omaha, the movie years ago. And, but we'd stayed in touch mainly through, through Twitter and mutual friends. But, um, and it was like, same kind of thing. Like, Hey dude, do you want to do, you know, an I order a voiceover in this movie, uh, it's a Watergate film. You get to play Haldeman. He's like, sure. <laughs> you know, like, all right. So that's two, but, you know, uh, <laughs> Richard kind had been in Bernard and Huey and we had a great Working relationship on that that I knew his agents and managers and I and and he loved the script and um you know and I know with Richard it's it, it's really more a question of schedule and availability with him so we didn't know for sure we would get him until until we did you know but he was great you know um and now it's like now I feel like I can't make a movie without Richard Kind you know <laughs> um, <laughs> would, and that's okay I I wouldn't mind being that guy you know who only has to make have Richard Kind in movies um and who else uh but then like kathy Curtin and Vonnie curtis hall they for various reasons we just did not have anyone cast in those roles which for those who don't know that's kind of the two older swinger characters and um and we were shooting for the first week without knowing who was going to be in and and the whole first week was just um willa and and john you know th- those char- those two characters and then the second week, we are going to bring in the two characters who play the the swingers. And we're like into the third, fourth day of shooting there. And Will and John are like, uh, Dan, who who is playing the swingers in this movie? <laughs> and I'm like, I don't know yet. So, you know, we were scrambling around and calling agents and, you know, asking the crew, like, hey, you guys are all young New York indie film people who, who have been the nice actors to work with and and it was the crew who actually suggested uh Kathy Curtin and then and then I realized she'd been in a lot of stuff that I knew and had worked with other directors that I knew um but yeah when your script supervisor and your gaffer both suggest an actress like you listen to them you know because they know who's good to work with and who isn't um and then it was it was in Agent Gersh who suggested hey what do you think of Bonnie Curtis Hall and I'm like Emmy Winner Bonnie Car- Curtis Hall you bet yeah you know and then so they came on with like less than three days notice um which was uh which was fun for all of us to just have them just show up and play these crazy characters and and the reactions you know with no time for rehearsals or even getting to know the other actors and so the reactions that we got from from willa fitzgerald and, and john Magara were were kind of the reactions that they had in real life to to bondi and and kathy and and i talked to bondi about it i mean he said it was great just You know sort of making that work for them which is to say surprising them and never knowing what those you know not telling them what they were going to do in advance and you know it just we all kind of knew that was the circumstance we were in and and we just made the most of it you know which is fun we we kind of embraced that you know the spontaneity of it
1: yeah i'm I'm curious um you know you've been around i'm you know so many great films through slam dance and I'm wondering how you think that's affected your career as a filmmaker. You know, being around a lot of great films has to be inspiring, bring motivation, and um, as well as collaboration opportunities.
2: Yeah, it, it, collaboration exactly. I mean, the last three cinematographers I've used um, have all come from people that I've met at Slam Dance. The last couple of producing partners I've met have all come from Slam Dance. A lot of, um, a lot of, yeah crowdfunding backers and investors i've met at slam dance um so yeah i mean it's definitely i've made the most of of those relationships every year but also just like you said like just sort of taking inspiration from from the new films and new filmmakers that you see every time co-opting them and going okay what's the hot new camera and what's the hot new distribution model and what's the you know who are the hot actors to work with um you know i've met actors in park city um and and that's really you know that's been great and then you know just realistically it's if people haven't heard of me as a director they've probably heard of Slam Dance you know so if I'm calling an agent or an agency or an actor and they haven't and they're not that familiar with me as a director but they're all like oh yeah I had a film with Slam Dance or I know people that have been Slam like they all kind of know it you know and they don't always know what to make of it but they are <laughs> you know which is sometimes. You know, sometimes that's the sweet spot is when they've heard of Slam dance, but they haven't actually been there, so they think it's cooler than it is. You know, but <laughs> um, but no, it's been good. And then and then just you know, the, every now and again, like the situations, like you know, to call Russo and say, you know, how is Jim Rash to work with? And then you can, and then you meet the actor and you say, oh, you know, Joe Russo says hello. You know, and they're like, and then they think more highly of you. You know. So, having those connections, even if you don't really use them a lot or to any huge extent, it 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 helps. You know, it definitely helps,
0: and i'm I'm curious uh, the film industry has always, you know, ebbed and flowed and and adjusted and changed. Um We were having a nice discussion with Ira Deutschman about this when oh, he was yeah. on the show talking about streaming and talking about the subscription model in theaters and and, you know, even maintaining your your presence on film festivals. Do you have any predictions on how you think the distribution model might change in the future? Is Do you see anything coming down the pike that might be different or might be new, especially just coming off of your, your new film?
2: Well, the big picture, and I, I love Ira, respect him. Um, and uh, that's great that you guys talked to him. Um, but in my mind, the big picture is how little has, ch- has changed. And by extension, then how little probably will change, which is to say, in the grand scheme of things, there's a ton of people making films and about four of them will get noticed every year, you know, <laughs> um, and get big distribution and win awards and, you know, get famous or whatever, or, or wealthy, uh, not necessarily both. And, and you know, 99% of filmmakers don't. And, and that percentage hasn't changed in 120 years in the film business, you know, so... Um, and then, so, okay, so if you're not one of those anointed three or four people, what do you do to at least, you know, rise above, you know, the 85% that, that you know, that uh, that you can have a, the opportunity to rise above? And that's really where, which also hasn't changed, that's where relentless marketing for, <laughs> for your own film and hucksterism, you know, comes into play because, okay, Hollywood's not going to you know, open their door for you and they're not gonna knock on your door. So what can you do to to somehow break in, break around, break free of everyone? So, and that's where going to festivals, wearing a sandwich board, like all the things I do, you know, arranging uh, mysteriously for protesters to show up at every one of your screenings. I can't believe there were (laughs) pro-Nixon protesters at all of our screenings. You know, wearing an 18 and a half mask in the middle of a pandemic, but every picture had of me had the name of the film right there. How about that? You know, <laughs> um, uh, and, and just, and just, you know, in sort of a relentless pursuit of the festival circuit in and of itself and embracing it as. Okay. This is your distribution. It's not a means to an end. Like, oh, I must get into this festival to get this distribution. And I won't go to this festival because no distributor is there. It's like, no, you made a film because you want people to react. You know, you make a comedy, you want to hear people laugh, you make a horror film, you want to hear them shriek, you make a drama and they laugh, well, you tell people it's comedy, you know, whatever it is, you make a film for an audience in theory, right? Otherwise, it's just a, you know, it's just light and shadow and pixels. It's it's, it's like the tree in the forest. If nobody sees it, does it doesn't really exist? So, um, so I wholeheartedly embraced the festival circuit. You know, this film, we played at about 25 festivals on on four continents and, and this was coming after COVID. We didn't even talk about COVID. Oh my God. So um, (laughs) we, you know, but the timing of the, of when we were hitting the festival circuit was right around, it was right after the Delta variant. And so festivals had been Virtual for the for like a year and a half, and then we were coming into it, and there was a little window of about two and a half months where they were live again between Delta and Omicron. It was sort of in the trough between variants. I call it. We we played all the trough festivals, like <laughs> like, we, like hit them hard and heavy, and you know, did like ten in that fall. You know, Woodstock, Tallgrass. We won a five thousand dollar prize at Tallgrass. You know, we went to the Rome International Festival and, and won a prize there, and a distributor in London thought it was in Italy turned out it was in Georgia you know and um so we we really you know went to we had our international premiere in Sao Paulo and we were the only filmmakers who had a physical presence there my uh, my composer was able to go in person so all of a sudden we were like the hot film at like the, you know one of the biggest festivals in South America you know we went to have the European premiere in in and in spain which is like the second or third biggest festival there and um and we just had fun with it too you know um you know really kind of invited every you know everyone on the cast and crew and backers across the world uh, to come and 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 get out and just have fun with it because we didn't know what would happen next like the, any festival could have been the last festival ever you know <laughs> didn't know so it's like distribution i don't know if there's gonna be distribution i don't know if there's gonna be theaters so anyway but along the way we did pick up distributors um you know one in london one and based in denver and in and we kind of divided our rights we we did um uh, we actually did an airline deal first and we wound up on on six airlines um uh, blue virgin right. atlantic singapore air uh air new zealand emirates and qatar um and we did that deal first. That was like because you know if you play in an airplane, people you know will watch a full length feature film. Uh, the, more likely than they are going to binge it, three episodes of an eight episode series. You know, so um, so we sort of found ways and places where people would uniquely see our movie, and that's that's the goal. And then and then did a sixty city theatrical release over seven months. Um, anyway, all, which none of which answers the question. Which is uh, what was the question? It was, it was what's happening? What's going to happen next? I don't know, but <laughs> I do. What I do know is that whatever the medium is, it doesn't really matter. Uh, the process of having you know all these gatekeepers, whoever they are, whether it's Harvey Weinstein or Netflix, you know, it'll change. It'll change whether they're streamers or networks or theaters or whatever they are. You know, there's only going to be a handful of anointed people every year. And meanwhile, there's a bunch of other people trying to make movies and trying to hustle. And then if you're the one who's hustling more than the others, you'll, you know, your head will peek through. And at some point you have a body of work, you know, you have an oeuvre, you know, and you say, oh yeah, I made a bunch of films in my life. I can, I can live with that or die with it now or whatever, you know. So the point is, you know, we're, we're artists, let's make art and not worry not get too hung up on everything else but yeah cuz the streaming thing that's going to ebb and flow there's you know i think people are getting sick of you know eight episode streaming series that are just kind of stretched out narratives and you know and now they're you know they realize they were overspending so they're going to you know that's going to come come back down meanwhile theaters are kind of recovering slowly and so you know there's going to be an embrace of that you know 90 to 120 minute feature again
0: well, that's a, you know, that's a wonderful perspective, actually. I mean, it, it sounds like you're just focused on telling a story and connecting that story to an audience. And I think that's, yeah. that's a smart, that's a smart way to look at it.
2: Well, yeah, you just keep your head down and do it, you know, because uh, it's not like Hollywood's hiring me to do episodic. That's for sure. So if uh, they're not going to hire me to do their stuff at least with indie see the nice thing about indie features is you can kind of green light yourself you know I mean whether you're shooting on an iPhone or shooting IMAX you know it's one way or the other you can green light yourself it may not be easy it may cost money it may take time but you can do it um and there's kind of no excuse not to say you're gonna make a film now whereas a series anything episodic you need to have a network to show it like that's there's I mean, there's starting to be more festivals that are doing episodic stuff and pilot stuff. So there there are some opportunities for that. For the most part, you know, festivals are still focused on features and shorts. You know, and that's it. So, yes, yeah, so I'm just going to stick with what I'm doing for the most part. But but then again, I'm sort of media agnostic a little bit. I mean, I you know, hey, I can make a film for a plane. Okay. You know, <laughs> like I don't. I'm not precious about the movie theater experience. It's great. I like playing movies in movie theaters, but honestly, you know, more people have sent me back still frames of them watching my movie on a JetBlue flight than in a movie funny! you know, so. funny. And, you know, not for nothing, uh, we made more money, or we will have made more money on the airline deal uh, than any other revenue source put together. and and i've seen other indie filmmakers because i've now recommended them to to the airplane distributors you know with like no stars and no big festival play and they're still making money on airplanes so and and i don't know that that's gonna last it may not as as more airplanes start to probably move towards kind of like oh how can we have people just use their own netflix password and Watch things on there like that. That's starting to happen a little bit, and the prices for that airlines are paying are are only about two thirds what they were before the pandemic. So it's not it's not a panacea for everyone or for every film, but it's uh, for us anyway. It worked.
0: Well, that makes sense. That makes sense. Well, uh, this has been a really fun conversation and uh, a lot of great information, a lot of great stories. Um, so you can take a moment to think about this, but I want to throw this at you. So, so you're making your next movie and you can, pair. (laughs) great.
2: thanks. You have a lot of confidence in me. Thanks. I
0: have total confidence and you can pair any two actors from film history in the movie. You can choose anybody, Jimmy Cagney, Charlie Chaplin, Marilyn Monroe, Jack Nicholson, Ryan Gosling. Doesn't matter. Who would you pair together in your film?
2: I, I don't know. Uh, not dana andrews i find he lacks charisma um errol flynn i mean uh oh good choice i mean there's a lot there's a lot of personal baggage with errol flynn but um but as an actor i he he's very watchable um you know i mean throw richard kind into any movie and i'm happy so
0: errol flynn and richard kind
2: yeah that's a buddy movie (laughs) i would i would see that
0: movie i would definitely see that movie
2: yeah um yeah I'd see that sure. Uh, <laughs> I mean, it's two white guys, you know, so it would it'd be nice if we had a bit more diversity um, <laughs> I mean, you could put tay Diggs in anything and uh and he's the nicest guy to work with he's in my film between us, and you know tay Diggs and Vondi Curtis all together you know would be it would be a fantastic pairing, you know yeah, Vondy and Errol Flynn would be great <laughs> would be in a dance movie. <laughs> Like very acro- very, you know, athletic and acrobatic, I think.
0: That's fun. That's fun. Yeah. Um, well, one other thing we'd like to ask if you if you have one, we sometimes ask the guest to leave a question for the next guest, uh, knowing that you don't know who the next guest is. Do you have anything you would like to throw out there for whoever we have next on the show?
2: Yes. Do you owe me money? <laughs> <laughs>
0: You know, they may not answer that.
2: I mean, or more importantly, <laughs> do I owe them money? I mean, that's probably, <laughs> that's probably more likely. But um, yeah, I you know, I mean, we didn't even talk about the fact that, that uh we, you know we shot the movie in March of twenty twenty. What could possibly go wrong? And well, you
0: had a gap, right? You had a gap in yeah. production. Right? Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, yeah. But, Tell us about that. I, sure. I, I'm curious about that. I, what, well, what I'm curious about, um, and and you can explain this in the story, but I know you started. Uh, was it pre-COVID and then COVID hit? and Then you had to take a gap.
2: Yeah, we started. Yeah, we started March third, twenty twenty, and it was a, supposed to be a fifteen-day shoot. We got eleven days in. And we found out we were the last film shooting in North America. <laughs> we were Like what? That can't be good. Why did every, why everyone else stop? And because uh, we were pretty isolated, we were kind of in our own bubble before we knew that was even a thing. Uh, but then we realized, you know, we had to shut down too, and and we only had four days left to go. So. Um, you know, I grabbed the hard drive and came back to my home in Culver City in L.A. And I'm like, well, I guess I'm the editor now. <laughs> and, um, and then but a third of our crew wound up staying at the Silver Sands Motel, the motel we were we were filming at in Greenport for um, so about eight of them, kind of the single Brooklyn types who didn't want to go back to New York. Um, and Terry very kindly invited them to all stay at the motel because, you know, motels had shut down. So there was no one else staying there. Um, so about a third of them stayed there for, for 10 weeks, for two and a half months. And then, and actually our cinematographer, Elle Schneider, she stayed there for six months. Uh, in fact, I think she's still there. Uh, she, she never left. Um, she, and then, so six months went by and it was finally SAG and, and, uh, Directors Guild had come up with kind of the COVID safe protocols. And then we were one of the first films back shooting and then kind of one of the guinea pigs. Um, to see if it was safe and possible. And and so we did everything right and we were able to do those last four days. Um, You know, and thankfully we'd already shot the kissing scenes and the fighting scenes and the dancing scenes, like anything that was involved intimacy that we at that time you wouldn't have been able to do. Um, And we never had any crowd scenes. I mean, it turned out a lot of what we were doing was the right way to make a COVID film. Stay, stay in a motel really far away. You know, we were three hours away from New York City, 20 minute walk from the closest town. That was That's a smart way to make a COVID film. You know, everybody and did you have to bathrooms and that kind of thing.
0: Did you have to adjust anything in the script because of that gap? Were you able to actually pick up where you left off, or did you have to make adjustments?
2: There were very few adjustments we had to make. A couple scenes, maybe we moved to outside instead of inside. But like I said, we were really lucky that we didn't—we weren't forced to make changes because of COVID. Now, the advantage to having six months to edit, you know, eighty percent of the film was that we could really kind of tighten the script and hone in on what scenes we needed, add a couple scenes, take scenes away. Um, We didn't—we never had to reshoot anything, which was great. But um, we—but that was creatively was actually kind of a, a nice you know, break to have. I mean, it's what Hollywood studios do all the time. They always schedule in reshoots to do stuff like that. Um, you know, Because once you fine tune the edit, you're like, oh, it'd be great if we had this little scene or that little. Scene. Right, right. So so from a creative standpoint, it was actually really helpful. And then during that time, during like May of 2020, when everyone was shut down, that was when we also realized we could do the um, the audio recording of Nixon, Haldeman and Al Haig um, over Zoom. And we did it just like this, except we could see each other. And, right. <laughs> um, and that was great because just, it just sort of, psychologically, like this was at a time when actors could not do anything creative, you know, and most filmmakers right. couldn't either. And all of a sudden we're like, you know what guys, we're going to do an 18 and a half minute radio play, you know, over the next couple of days. <laughs> and we just we went for it and did it over zoom. And the, the quality was good enough. And I mean, it was, we replicated I and mean, replicate. We, um, Know, we we also recorded on, on QuickTime files and, and as a backup, or, or that actually was the primary audio and the Zoom was the backup. Uh, but anyway, the point was like, you know, people saw, people on our own team, our own investors, our own cast and crew saw us like, oh, these guys are still making this movie. <laughs> like, wow. And just creatively, like for, for Bruce and John and, and Ted Remy, you know, it's like, wow, we can we can still, you know, practice our art. And uh, and and create characters and have fun, tell a story. So it was nice to be able to do that. And then meanwhile, my the composer Luis was working with musicians around the world, literally from Mexico to to Brazil. And because musicians were sitting around with nothing to do, so we're like, you know what? Let's if we're going to go remote, let's go really remote, you know, and and get collaborators from around the world. And we really added probably a lot more music to the film than than would have been there originally. So. Interesting. And Interesting. wrote new songs, and and those songs became Oscar contenders. So, uh, which we're very happy to
0: see. <laughs> well, that's great. Yeah. Well, it's a wonderful film. Uh, Thank you. I'm so really nice. happy for you and the movie, and and uh, again, we appreciate the time you've taken to chat with us. Yeah. Um. You know, you've been a very strong influence on the indie film scene with Slam Dance and the films you're and making. And my books. And so, Don't forget my books. And your books. And your books. Of versa exactly.
2: to independent filmmaking. Yeah. You know, yeah well now yeah, yeah. In, and, in first and second edition and an audiobook.
0: And where can people find you?
2: At my house, you know. <laughs> get are you with...
0: are you like an Instagram guy, a Facebook guy? Oh you, yeah. You...
2: I'm on yeah, I'm starting to do more Instagram, although I still can't quite figure out how it works. Um but uh, Twitter and then of course Twitter sort of imploded or did it, no one's quite sure. And and Facebook, uh, so yeah, it's it's I'm depending on which one it is, it's either demurvished. D M I R V I S H, or but you can also go to my website at com and uh or 18 and a half or um but yeah, the, the Twitter and the Facebook and the Instagram are the main things I every now and again TikTok too
0: awesome before awesome. that
2: gets taken away from us by the man <laughs>
0: <laughs> exactly. Well, Dan, thanks so much for being on the show. Today. No, thank I you. Really Andrew, appreciate thank your you. Time. Yeah. This has been a lot of fun, man, and yeah. and um. Next time you get down South by Southwest Way or Austin Film Festival, you look me up and we'll uh, we'll get together and catch up.
2: Awesome, man. Thanks thanks for having me, guys.
1: Thank you for listening to the Filmmaker Mixer Podcast, a podcast created and hosted by filmmakers Jeff Stolen and Andrew Lamping and produced by Jeff Weber.
0: Our theme song was composed by a man who thinks culottes are coming back, Stephen T. Bennett.
1: Make sure to follow or subscribe on whatever platform you're listening to us on and stay tuned for future episodes.